on Christ's Sermon on the Mount from Matthew's Gospel. Um, this series will, God willing, take us to Easter of uh, next year, which is in early April. Well, the Sermon on the Mount is uh, probably the most famous sermon of all time, and it has influenced uh, Western culture and thinking in myriad ways. Um, if, for example, you ever, describe, you ever find yourself describing somebody as salt of the earth, meaning a person of great integrity or reliability or trustworthiness, you've gotten that expression from the Sermon on the Mount. Likewise, if you ever use the expression, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Likewise, if you ever refer to the golden rule, uh, a phrase which still has some currency in some places, the golden rule being the title we give to one of the teachings in the sermon, do unto others as uh, you would have them do to you, Matthew 7:12. Well, philosophers and ethicists routinely consider the Sermon on the Mount to be the highest ethical achievement of all humankind. Yet despite all of this, it can be difficult to interpret, difficult to make sense of, difficult to actually live. Indeed, uh, the Sermon on the Mount has given Christianity, in the view of some skeptics, the reputation of being a religion that espouses lofty but completely unlivable ideals. Uh, something that is often said about the sermon is that it is the best known of Jesus' teachings, but arguably the least well understood and the worst obeyed of everything he ever said. That's one reason for studying it closely. Let's see if we can really make sense of it, perhaps in a way that we've never managed to before. I have a second reason for wanting us to study it closely. Now, about a year ago, I was reading a book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church by a man named Alan Crider. In that book, Crider talks about church growth, how Christianity grew in the first three centuries after Jesus. Now, we know from Acts chapter 1 that immediately after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension back into heaven, we know that the total number of Christians in the whole wide world was 120. Uh, in other words, all of the Christians in the world could be seated comfortably in this room, and I would guess that there are roughly 120 people present right now um, in a room that seats 150. But... So this is about how many Christians there were in the whole wide world at that time. But 300 years later, and it's estimated that somewhere in the region of 8 to 12% of the population of the Roman Empire was Christian. In other words, perhaps there were as many as 5 to 6 million Christians in the world. That's roughly three times the population of Perth today. Now, those figures are estimates. Nobody can know for sure, but all the experts agree the spread of the Christian faith was extraordinary during those times. It spread everywhere, through every Roman province and even beyond the boundaries of the Roman Empire. It spread through every social class and every ethnic group, young and old, male and female. And as a movement, it therefore grew at an average rate of perhaps 40% per decade, which is staggering growth. 
Now, how do we account for this growth? Was it because of uh, well-thought-out evangelistic campaigns, outreach strategies, seeker-friendly services? Uh, was it people boldly telling uh, the gospel to their neighbors and inviting them to church or asking them to read the Bible with them? Well, actually, all of these are good things, but the answer is a most definite no. They weren't doing anything like that. No, uh, they didn't do evangelism. They believed that evangelism had been done by the apostles, that it was their job, and they'd done it well. When they met, it was largely in secret, and they usually had guards on the doors to bar entrance to anyone they didn't already know. If you did, wanted, if you did want to attend a church service, well, you had to apply for membership, and others had to vouch for you. And even uh, if uh, they said you were okay, in order to attend a proper worship service, you had to be baptized first, and that took three years of catechism classes. Uh, so you didn't just kind of decide to go to a church and rock up. Um, but the thing was this. Christians lived very differently. Very differently. They treated each other and outsiders differently to anything people had ever seen before. They lived by such radically different values compared to the people around them that this excited intense curiosity and interest and the thirst and the desire to know more. The, the backdrop, of course, was one of persecution. Christians weren't being persecuted in all places and at all times. Far from it. But there were flare-ups and waves of quite vicious persecution. If you were a Christian, it wasn't always safe to just let anybody know. If you explained the gospel to your neighbor, you might just find yourself being fed to a lion. Yet and nevertheless, your neighbor was watching. Watching you carefully. And if you did something to make them wonder, in other words, if you did something that was literally wonderful, then you had an opportunity. Now, I think that we too are living in an age of increasing isolation and to some degree an age of perceived persecution. If not actual persecution, then certainly the church has lost almost all of the immense authority, respect and kudos it had before the Second World War. Uh, the church has since then passed through times of being seen as silly and irrelevant. And Christians now are increasingly being seen not just as silly and, and irrelevant, but rather as being the enemy, as being evil. As many have noted, the world seems to be becoming increasingly hostile to Christian witness of any sort. They have no trouble whatsoever in telling us to shut up. Indeed, they think that is the right and good thing to do in this age of tolerance and inclusion in the context of secular fundamentalism. The time has come, or at least is coming, when nobody will be listening to us. But one thing is for sure. They will be watching us. To quote John Dixon, we are living in an age of increasing hostility, but also an age of increasing 
opportunity. And we shouldn't underestimate either side of that equation. In an age where more and more ears are closed to the gospel, it will be more and more important that we, God's people, live as God intends. And for this, we need the Sermon on the Mount. Um, the Sermon on the Mount in our Bibles is uh, three chapters long. It's found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7. Now, in chapter 3, John the Baptist comes preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of God is, sorry, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And Jesus himself is baptized. And following a time of testing, Jesus' public ministry begins. He gathers his first disciples. And then we get just enough information to see the general character of his ministry a ministry that we'll become very familiar with. He is an itinerant preacher-teacher. He wanders around the countryside. He teaches on the kingdom of heaven. And he heals all who are sick or suffering or disabled or under the oppression of the devil. And then immediately, as soon as we've got this little picture as to what it's going to look like, immediately we're into the Sermon on the Mount for us in terms of us as readers the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' opening address. Chapter 5 opens. Jesus sees the crowd. He climbs a mountain. He sits down, which is the traditional posture for a teacher in those times. The preacher sat, the congregation stood. And Matthew, our narrator, begins, he's already indeed begun a series of comparisons, some subtle, some obvious, between Jesus and Moses. The exact phrase, he went up on a mountainside, is used three times in the Greek Old Testament, always of Moses ascending Mount Sinai to receive and deliver the law. To Jewish people, the hints are obvious. Jesus is the new Moses, and this is the beginning of the long prophesied new Exodus. And I'll say a little bit more about that next week. The introduction to the sermon is uh, eight statements beginning with blessed other. Blessed. These statements are called the Beatitudes, traditionally, a name coming from the Latin word beati, meaning blessed. So before we even consider the, the eight statements, uh, what does the word blessed mean? Uh, well, Blessing, blessed, when God blesses his creatures, it is an enabling word. It is a promise, a thing that he speaks over them, knowing and making it so that things will go well with them and they'll meet with success insofar as they will achieve and fulfill God's design purpose for them. When God created humankind in his image, in his likeness, male and female, he blessed them, saying, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every, every living creature that moves on the ground. And uh, from that time, every new saving initiative of God, every new covenant in the Old Testament, everything he does to save uh, with respect to humankind has always included blessings. And it would be stupid in every sense of that word, it would be stupid not to scramble so as to take hold of every blessing that God has to offer. The Hebrew concept of being blessed or blessing or blessedness 
is perhaps we might think of it as the theological equivalent to the Chinese idea of good luck or the Roman idea of good fortune or the American dream of happiness. Indeed, the Christian pastor and author Eugene Peterson defines blessedness as being, quote, lucky with holy luck, unquote. Things going well with you because the Lord is with you. The blessed person is the recipient of something good. They have received kindness and generosity from God, not necessarily because of anything they've done, but rather because God is kind and generous. Lucky are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who are sad. How fortunate are the meek. Well, before going too much further, let's consider for a moment what we might consider to be blessed. What does blessed look like in terms of what we think? What are your assumptions um, about what's really blessed? Who, Who are you envious of? Who do you admire? For any number of reasons, Um, I find it easy to be impressed by, uh, to regard as blessed, Formula One racing car drivers. (laughs) Now, I know that that might sound incredibly silly coming from a pastor, but if you think about it, there are any number of very good reasons why anybody might legitimately consider that group of young men to be particularly fortunate, lucky, blessed. Um... And as creatures, we we all tend to, we we want to maximize things like satisfaction and opportunity and experience. And we want to minimize pain, suffering, loss of power, demobilization, lack of choice. And by and large, we all want to meet with success when it comes to our work and in our private lives. Love. When we bless others, we are praying for God's goodness, kindness, generosity, and mercy over that person or situation. And when we bless the name of the Lord... It is an act of worship, using the power of our words to magnify and increase the power of God's word in our lives. So that's something about blessing and blessedness, but there's one more aspect of blessing I would like to consider, and Psalm 1 illustrates it well. The concept of blessedness often includes the idea, the simple idea, of God rewarding those who do good, those who do the right thing. So then, in Psalm 1, God will reward the person who studies his word and knows from his word to reject the ways of the sinful, the wicked, those who mock. That action to study God's law and having done so to avoid sin, wickedness, and mockery, that will pay dividends. That person will be blessed like a tree planted by an irrigation ditch, even in times of drought, they will bear fruit in due course. Not so the wicked. This world will ultimately punish them because the way of the wicked leads to frustration and destruction. In this sense, then, each person is fully capable of choosing to be blessed. And to reject the opportunity to be blessed is indirectly to invite curse. So let's now hear what Jesus says. Verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The phrase poor in spirit uh, can be um, well defined by explaining what it's not, what the opposite of it is. Actually, last week, when we looked at Christ's letter to the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation, we saw what a bunch of self-satisfied, self-sufficient hypocrites they were. That's the opposite of being poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are humble and contrite in their hearts. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven because only those who really know to cry out with the tax collector, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Only those who will receive his mercy. To, um, to be poor in spirit is to come to God knowing that you carry nothing in your hands, you have nothing to offer, that we are infinitely in his debt, that we cannot possibly pay it back, that there's no way at all in which we can save ourselves, that there are no excuses that can be made on our behalf, and that actually we deserve judgment and condemnation. And yet, nevertheless, God is still our only hope and our sure hope. There cannot be any hope of entry into the kingdom of heaven, either as a present or future reality, except by such poverty. Are you poor in spirit? It's not hard to find out. If any one of the truths I've just presented offends or causes indignation in your heart, you are not poor in spirit. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Um, this beatitude doesn't simply mean that it's good to be sad, uh, but rather it's telling us that there is a place for sadness, there is a place for weeping in the Christian life. Jesus is described as weeping twice in the Gospels, once overwhelmed by the realization of the consequences for the city of Jerusalem, the consequences for them of their decision to reject him, he weeps. It's just too unbearable what their decision will mean for them. Another time, overwhelmed by the sadness of death and the, the grief of his friends, overwhelmed in the presence of death, Jesus weeps outside of Lazarus's grave, even though he's just about to raise him from the dead. Paul describes himself or is described as weeping many times. And to summarize all of that, the godly person weeps over sin. The godly person weeps over their own sin, weeps over the sin of others and over the consequences of sin in this world. We weep because we ignore God, because um, we... We show God contempt when we do that. We weep because the world ignores God and his laws are not obeyed. And because as a result of this, the world marches steadfastly towards needless destruction. We weep. But the promise of this beatitude is that those who mourn in such manner will be comforted. God is coming. God is saving and the kingdom is about forgiveness, restoration, reconciliation, righteousness. Here's the checkpoint. Does the reality of your own sin make you cry? 
Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, I, I think in our culture the word meek is not a particularly attractive word. It uh, has a taste in our mouths. It has flavors of being submissive, but possibly in a weak-willed or wet kind of way. Um, it, it suggests somebody who's unable to stand up for themselves. It suggests somebody who's walked on by others. Uh, its opposite might be assertiveness. Actually, all of those un associations are unhelpful when it comes to understanding the word meek. Jesus describes himself as meek in Matthew 11:29. Come to me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. Yet Jesus is none of those other things I've just talked about. The Greek word meek means gentle, humble, considerate, and courteous. I think it's, it's worth noting that when Romans selected their war horses, they looked for meekness in a war horse. Um, these were animals that were fearless and brave, that charged right in, um, that, they, that were, were strong and fierce, but they were meek, meaning they were dependable, trainable, teachable. And if you're like me, you might jump in on this one and think, oh yeah, I love learning, I'm teachable. But that's not quite it. The test is this. Am I teachable with respect to being able to learn from others about myself? To quote John Stott, um, John Stott writes, uh, I myself am quite happy to recite the general confession in church and to call myself a miserable sinner. But let someone else come up to me after church and call me a miserable sinner and I want to punch him on the nose. In other words, I am not prepared to allow other people to think or speak of me what I have just acknowledged before God that I am. Unquote. And a few other commentators have noticed the same thing. The more you understand yourself to be a teacher, the harder it is to be teachable. That is to say, to hear correction from others. Um, that's a very difficult thing. Um, yeah, that is hard. But there are four things this world hates. Five, it will not abide. A policeman who is a bent copper. A judge who thinks he's above the law. A doctor who murders his patients. A priest who prays on the vulnerable. And an unteachable teacher. But the meek will inherit the earth. It is not the adaptable who will survive, but the teachable. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Righteousness means rightness, being right with God, being, doing the right thing towards others and them treating you rightly as well. Communities treating people in the right way. That is to say, befitting the character and purposes of God. That would be, that would be rightness everywhere, righteousness. Those who hunger and thirst, who deeply desire desperately for these things, they will know true satisfaction. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. 
Um, mercy is incredibly important. It basically means two things. Mercy can mean exactly the same thing as compassion. So when we see someone in need, uh, we might respond with mercy, such as uh, the Samaritan uh, in, in, in Jesus' parable. He had mercy on the one who had uh, um, had been attacked, um, to, to have compassion, save them from suffering. But in distinction to compassion, mercy can also mean showing, uh, saving clemency or leniency to those who have sinned against us. It means turning away from our anger in order to forgive. Now, as many uh, have noticed, and my, my teacher here is uh, John Yates, God wears anger like an ill-fitting shirt. God does get angry, indeed so angry at human sin and wickedness that in theory at least, he is angry enough to destroy all humanity. God's anger is real and terrifying. Yet and nevertheless, he is slow to anger, and in the words of, psalmist, of the psalmist, his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor a lifetime. In contrast, possibly to this relationship between God and his anger, um, in contrast, God is merciful to the core of his being. He is inherently merciful. When our forefathers uh, in the faith pleaded with God in the wilderness for him to, to turn away from his anger and to be merciful, they knew that they were appealing to something profound and fundamental to the very nature of God. God delights in showing mercy. It's, it's him to the core. But if we were to stand praying, Oh Lord, please turn away from your mercy and smite these disgusting Ninevites, Please remember your anger. We, we know instinctively that we're, we're, we're on thin ice now. No, that's, that's somehow not in keeping with God's truest character, which is always to desire mercy. And he delights in seeing mercy in us too. Compassion uh, to others in need. Forgiveness in the face of sin. If you need the mercy of God, which all of us do all of the time, do your very best to act mercifully at every opportunity. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Um, I, look, I think it's easy for us to imagine that purity of heart is never having any bad thoughts at all. And we know that we do have bad thoughts. There's, there's rage and malice and temptation and maybe an illicit sexual fantasy and you know we've got all kinds of bad stuff in our hearts but purity of heart in the old testament is actually fundamentally about a heart in which there is no idolatry and therefore a heart in which there is sincerity both to god and to others um, the opposite of having a pure heart is being deceitful or a hypocrite, the one who does not trust in an idol or swear by what is false, that is the one who is pure of heart, the one in whom there is no guile or intent to deceive either God or fellow human being. The one who worships God as God will see God. Verse 9, 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Um, it's, it's not an easy thing necessarily to imagine what a peacemaker is. We might instantly find ourselves thinking in terms of pacifier or appeaser or mediator or peacekeeper. But all of those words and thoughts, they're not entirely unuseful, but they're limited, perhaps misdirected, perhaps inadequate. Jesus, um, so far from being an appeaser, well, no, actually, Jesus was regularly a disturber of the peace and occasionally intentionally creating controversy. Jesus also rejected the role of mediator when there was a conflict between brothers. And he refused the role of peacekeeper as we would recognize it, that role being to lay down the law in order to punish vice and condemn the guilty. No, rather, when we're trying to understand what a peacemaker is, we should look to the cross. The design of peacemaking is most perfectly seen in the cross. Jesus suffering there willingly and sacrificially for the welfare of the very people who put him there, namely you and I, in order that they might not have to go through what he is going through, the punishment of death. Blessed are the peacemakers, the ones who create peace by willingly and sacrificially suffering for the sake of their enemies. The phrase rendered children of God in our NIV Bible is unfortunate because literally it is sons of God. And the phrase children of God is not the gender-inclusive equivalent of sons of God. The first phrase, children of God, is biblical and lovely and wonderful and is all about our unconditional belonging in Christ's name before God. The phrase sons of God means something quite different. Sons of God, that's about representation. Um, the son represents the father because he is a chip off the, off the old block. Um, it is sons of God is a gender-inclusive idea expressed in the language of patriarchy. Those who are peacemakers represent God, that is, they show the world what God is like. They are sons of God, both male and female, in his image, in his likeness. Those who live the cross will show the world what God is like. The next beatitude follows logically as a how-to of the one before because it discusses enemies. Verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. For those who would belong to God, for us who would own his name, there is no escaping the fundamental truth that we live in a world that for now is hostile to God and his rule. Verse 11 reads, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And it does not read, blessed are you if 
people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil because of me. Suffering for the gospel is both inevitable and unavoidable. It is a distinguishing feature of authentic discipleship. If we follow Christ, we cannot avoid it. Suffering for the gospel is inevitable and unavoidable. But lucky are you, lucky with holy luck when these things happen to you, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So what's the intention here? What, what are the Beatitudes all about? Well, undoubtedly, undoubtedly, the Beatitudes are intended to make the followers of Jesus think very differently about life and what's important. Um, if, if we think that Formula One racing car drivers are blessed, maybe we should read the Beatitudes again. To some degree, their intention is to make the comfortable uncomfortable and to bring comfort to those who are uncomfortable. But then again, really, basically, even for the uncomfortable, they're pretty uncomfortable. Certainly, standing as the gates of entry into the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes prepare us for the fact that God wills his people to think about life in a radically different way to the people around them. We are to understand life differently and thereafter to live differently. Because God is serious about change. And only those who change their minds and keep on changing their minds so that they too are serious about change and serious about the kind of change that God is serious about, only they will be able to follow Jesus to where he is going. The Beatitudes, in one sense, stand at the entry point into the sermon almost like a sign, a sign saying, turn around now. Go back if you can't agree to this. But importantly, the Beatitudes are also promises. Each one is a promise. A promise, in a sense, of where happiness or good fortune or luckiness is to be found. Jesus is telling us that ultimately life won't work for people who are arrogant, um, who ignore the pain of others, who are unteachable who hunger and thirst for fine dining, delicacy and fancy drinks, who do not suffer fools. This world will ultimately spit out those who show no mercy, who worship things other than God, who divide in order to rule, and who reject Jesus in order to avoid persecution in their desire to fit in and to advance. The Beatitudes as blessing statements from God Tell us what's real, what works, what must be foundational to our character on the basis of the true nature of the reality that he has created. They are a survival guide to planet Earth. It will be hard to live them, but to not live them is to perish, to ignore them, leads to destruction. For the way of the Lord, sorry, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. And the Lord be with you all. Amen.